Welcome to the Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, I speak with PhD student in the Department of Anthropology, Eric Thomas. In our conversation, we discuss Eric's research in the Chilean Patagonia and the political unrest and massive protests that are taking place currently in the Chilean capital of Santiago. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Of course, yeah, so you're in me. anthropology, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So to start out, can you talk a little bit about uh, what you're what you do here at UNC and what you study? Sure. Um, so I'm a doctoral candidate in the Department of Anthropology here at UNC, um, and I'm a sociocultural anthropologist. So um, as opposed to sort of human evolution over you know millennia, um, I look at current political configurations and economic configurations, the things people do, the way that people work, um, how they make decisions. Uh, and, I, and in particular, I work in sort of remote uh, frontier spaces, as I define okay. them. Yeah. Yeah. So I look at people who are... Um, who are very, very far away from urban centers, yet are subject to plans that are sort of developed in those centers. It's kind of my focus. So do you focus on a particular region? Yeah, so my work, honestly, since before I came to UNC, so I, I've been spending time in Chile since 2012. I actually lived there um, and taught at a university down there um, in 2012, 2013, okay. um, before I started the doctoral program here at UNC. But I've been working in, in Chile and, and specifically southern Chile, uh, doing the research I'm doing now since uh, 2014. Um, and I, I work in the Aysen region, which is the uh, one of the southernmost parts of the country. Um, it's also one of the most isolated. Uh, but in terms of um, its importance to the national economy, it's, it's one of the most critical, at least in terms of state planners in Santiago. Oh, really? How so? Um, so the region I work in is, is I sort of conceptualize it as, as what's called a resource frontier. Okay. Um, these are spaces where, uh, spaces that are undergoing rapid change uh, because of the production of usually one specific resource. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes resource frontiers would be thought of as uh, places where people are extracting mineral wealth, for example. Okay. We hear about in places in West Africa, for example, or, um, or people are logging or harvesting timber. This is a, a big issue in, in Southeast Asia and Indonesian places like that. Well, where I work, it's a little bit different. It's it's not a naturally occurring resource. It's not a free good or free service uh, from nature, as sort of, sort of people conceptualize these things. It's actually much more like agriculture. I study salmon production. Oh, okay. Um, and and uh, I study sort of the impact, both environmental and social, of large-scale salmon farming. The, the region where I work produces about a sixth of the, the world's farm salmon supply. Oh, wow. Um, despite having about between two and three percent of the Chilean population. Okay. All right. So, how big is this a region in terms of population? Uh, the population of the region is just over a hundred thousand people. Okay. Um, and uh, it's a little bit smaller than the two Carolinas combined. Um, okay. Geographically. Got it. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. And so you said this is farm salmon. So this is not off the coast or any. It's, it is. Oh, it is. It is it's, but um, they're. Yeah. It's, how does it's, that work exactly? It's open system salmon farming. So um, salmon, it's. Not, not widely known, but they're a carnivorous species, um, and they spend most of their life in saltwater. Um, it's a non-native species. Uh, yeah. Most of what's being farmed down there is Atlantic salmon, which okay. obviously Chile is, has only Pacific coastline. <laughs> it's um, almost all Pacific coastline. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. Uh, denying access to Argentina since 1818. Right. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, so... Um, 
These are species that have been introduced to Chile in a, in a series of waves, first actually for sport fishing um, at the turn of the um, 20th century, okay. or shortly before the turn of the 20th century. Um, but this process really accelerated in the 1980s um, with the help of experts from places like Norway, places like Japan, um, and investments from the United States, um, mm -hmm. significant capital investments from the United States. Um, and yeah, so these salmon are farmed offshore in floating cultivation, floating cultivation centers. Um, so basically what this looks like in, in practice is uh, it's about the size of two football fields. Um, and underneath that sort of rig, um, you have cages that go down, in some cases, as deep as like 100 meters um, into the ocean where the salmon live. And they grow and they're fed. And they um, you can think about it basically if you know anything about food lots in the, in the, um, the Midwest and the West of this okay. country, yeah. um, where there's a high concentration of cattle, for example. They're being corn-fed. Yeah. Sort of controversial. Michael Pollan talks about, a lot about this and uh -huh. how, how bad it is for the environment and for our diets. Um, but it's the same idea. It's just fish offshore. Um, and the water down there is, it, it's a region that has a lot of rivers, a lot of tributaries, a lot of estuaries um, that put fresh water into the ocean. So in that sense, it's ideal. It looks like uh, places where salmon are native, like the mm -hmm. fjords of, of Scandinavia or um, eastern Canada or for Pacific salmon, which, which they also farm now. Uh, it looks a lot like the Pacific Northwest up through Alaska. The landscape is like that. Um, and so in a sense, it's ideal for the production of, of uh, farm fish, but um, it's increasingly controversial both because of envir emerging environmental impacts um, and also because of who gets uh, the profits mm -hmm. um, and who is able to work and sort of improve their, their standing uh, within the industry and those that are left out. Yeah. Um, so sort of connects to wider, wider issues in Chile. Yeah. Have you um, have you talked with Elizabeth Havis in geography? I have, yeah. yeah. So I, I know Elizabeth um, not extremely well, but I've had several conversations with her. Um, less about salmon farming, but more about um, uh, fishing quotas, uh, yeah. which is, a, is a, uh, actually a significant part of my work um, in these coastal communities, which have traditionally fished, and, and mm -hmm. they're now being displaced because of salmon farming. Um, for a variety of reasons. But yeah, I've talked to Elizabeth a lot. She, she does fantastic work um, and uh, on sort of uh, both sort of ocean frontiers as well as more specifically on fishing quotas. So yeah, I, I love her stuff. Yeah, she was one of our faculty fellows last year. So was, oh, she okay. was so, working on her new project on oceanic territory, essentially. So, oh, cool. But, yeah, nice. so that's all. And she did a book on salmon as well, didn't she? Uh, or I mean, like, maybe it was tuna. I, I think, think, it, was I think tuna. it was tuna. Yeah, yeah it was tuna yeah. and... and their migratory patterns and yeah so wrong fish <laughs> but uh that's great so one reason i asked you to uh or i kind of sought out people that were working in chile was uh what's kind of going on right now in terms of um the mass protests and the uh the the kind of conflicts in the government right now do you have you do you have any experience with that or can you do you know are you keeping up with any of that to kind of explain to a broad audience what might be going on there when you yeah. see like almost a million people marching on the streets of Santiago or things like that yeah so um, I, I do have a lot of I've been paying very close attention to what's been happening one of the things about anthropology generally um, particularly sociocultural anthropology is we go and 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 do field work uh, for extended periods of time so I, I've spent uh, probably close to 16 months at this point down mm -hmm. in the region where I work, not including time I spent in Santiago. Um, and I have friends down there that I'm regularly in touch with. The miracles of modern technology, right? I can't imagine being an anthropologist 35 years ago yeah. and going two or three years without talking to the people that you've grown so close to right. uh, during your field work. Or, or if you you know talk to them, it's 
via correspondence and, uh, you know, it takes forever. Um, because I'm now, you know, with WhatsApp and Facebook and other social media, um, uh, not only am I able to, to track what's getting published and sort of what the official narratives are, but I'm having conversations with people who are on the ground, both in Santiago and in the region okay. um, where I work. And one of the things that's been really interesting about what's been going on in Santiago and the demands of protesters and the way that they're sort of framing their struggle is it it echoes demonstrations that actually took place in the Chilean far south um, in 2011 and 2012. Mm. Um, a lot of the uh, criticism of um, elites uh, selling off portions of the country and keeping the profits, policies that encourage foreign investment without actually providing for the population, a stag- stagnant wages, lack of social services. Um, this motivated a, a large-scale uprising that actually uh, closed the region, effectively, where I work, yeah. for uh, 44 days. Oh, wow. They blockaded runways. They uh, barric- uh, barricaded uh, bridges in and out of the region. They attacked the port. Um, and eventually, they, they forced... President Piñera, who's currently the president, who was president at that time as well. Yeah. Um, the Chilean system means you cannot serve consecutive terms. So, so uh, Michelle Bachelet was was president in between his two administrations. But um, eventually, this they introduced this raft of social programs in part to appease protesters. Uh, the uh, one of the coastal towns I work in got a uh, a new gymnasium for for youth programs. They got a new hospital. Um, but there's there's still issues regarding that and the staffing and when those things will be online. Um, that one of the issues with the isolation of of where I work is that uh, in this in this very fancy very new hospital, um, there is one technician who's qualified to run an X-ray machine, and they're only there uh, one Tuesday a month. Oh, wow. So these problems sort of continue yeah. um, where you have you know a new shi- new shiny infrastructure, but you don't necessarily you're not necessarily delivering the services that you promised. So in the context of um, uh, that's sort of a long wind-up, too. In the context of the current protests, um, obviously on a national level, um, Chileans are really frustrated uh, with stagnant... There have been several efforts to raise the, the national minimum wage that have been voted down. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been... Uh, Chile has uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, income disparity, uh, wealth gap, basically, in, yeah. in the OECD uh, block. Um, which is something that Chileans are acutely aware of. So you have a country that on the surface looks, um, at least for uh, Latin America writ large, uh, extremely developed, extremely advanced. Uh, the the protests were actually sparked over this this uh, transit hike for the metro yeah, system, right. which is sort of the crown jewel of Santiago urban planning. Um, it looks like, and I would argue, is cleaner than, uh, or at least up until recently, the metro systems that you see in Paris and Madrid and places like that. It was actually uh, the cars come from Spain. It was actually oh wow, okay, based on the French system, but but built, uh, I believe, by a Spanish firm, and so that the, mm-hmm. the cars are literally the same ones that you see in places like Madrid and Barcelona. Um, but this, these sort of infrastructure projects, which have largely been paid for, um, by encouraging foreign investment and taxing foreign investment, um, these infrastructure projects are not providing for the masses. Um, Chileans, uh, after the dictatorship ended had, uh, well, actually, and at the end of the dictatorship, there were credit fixes. So uh, Chilean families, working class families could get uh, cheap credit, but they'd be paying high interest rates. And and this is really the, the work of anthropologist Clara Hahn is, is excellent for actually understanding sort of how we got here. She talks about living in debt yeah. um, and that's impact on people who are um, going into debt because they can't pay their bills with what they're making in a month um, or because they have extended social networks that they need to provide for and they, they just can't do that with mm-hmm. the wages as they are. So there's a lot of frustration with elites in the country. And, and it's important um, to note that uh, 
this is not necessarily a partisan struggle. It is in the sense that um, because of the legacy of dictatorship, because uh, Chile was governed by uh, Augusto Pinochet uh, from 1973, really through 1990, and, and his leadership and impact continued well into the 1990s. Um, you know, he, he when he came to power, he outlawed political parties. Um, he gutted universities, um, with the exception of programs that would facilitate economic growth, right? Oh, and he see. was advised by people who'd studied with Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago. Neoliberalism, sort of the textbook case of neoliberalism, Chile is often referred to as a laboratory for that. So massive mm -hmm. privatization, um, encouraging foreign investment, uh, rolling back any kind of regulation on um, how workers can be treated, on um, the in sort of environmental protections, although there weren't a whole lot of environmental protections prior to 1973 either. Um, and so the, the legacy of that has been that the elites tend to be in Chile. Um, there are more sort of affluent elites on the right um, because they were able to do well during yeah. this far right period mm -hmm. um, by doing business with the, the dictatorship and, and with foreign investors who were interested in doing business. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's a, a nonpartisan issue in the sense that um, a lot of the things that have made people angry is the privatization of water, for example, took place under a socialist president, oh, at wow. least in name, Ricardo Lagos. Yeah. Um, there were numerous corruption scandals uh, that happened under Michelle Bachelet, who's very popular. She's she's served at the UN. She's um, done wonderful things to advance uh, women's rights, both in Chile and worldwide. But sh her cabinet was widely regarded um, as somewhat corrupt, uh, that, you know, wealthy elites uh, who were who were benefiting from from programs that were designed to benefit the population writ large. So um, Piñera, who's a center right politician, is is just the latest in a, in a legacy um, of politicians on the sort of center right and center left who have, in the views of a lot of the population, um, profited without sharing any of that wealth. Yeah. I, w what I noticed, thank you for that, is that here, when I was first getting the news, it seemed like it, it kind of it felt a little simplistic that it was like this uh, transportation hike sent this this uh, storm of protests. But if you scratch the surface a little bit, it seems like this was really just a straw that broke the camel's back. And then I also I uh, heard a podcast, I forget which one it was, and they were, they were interviewing someone who was in Santiago that for some people that even just that hike for uh, public transportation could be 20 to 30 percent of their income. And so it's it's helpful to get more of a context about what's going on. And, and the yeah, like you were saying, the legacy of that dictatorship seems to kind of live on. And, and people have been making this point a lot. You see it in the signs that they're carrying during these protests. You see it in uh, when people are, are interviewed. This frustration goes back 30 years. It goes yeah. back to there was this idea after the 1988 plebiscite in which the country voted um, Pinochet out, basically, mm. um, and, and, and the return to democracy was inaugurated, uh, didn't take full effect until 1990, um, that people sort of thought at that time that, that there would be these social reforms, that there would be these social programs, that uh, the rising tide that they were starting to see in Chile um, after some serious financial crises in the mid-1980s was going to, to, to raise all boats. Um, and the failure of uh, the center left to, to enact a new constitution there, um, maintenance of basically all of Pinochet's uh, neoliberal economic policies um, r really has frustrated people. And so you see this, they're talking about it's been 30 years. And yeah. they're talking about the return to democracy is mm -hmm. happening 30 years ago, but they didn't get what they thought they were going to get with that. They didn't get 
uh, popular representation. They didn't get better social services. They didn't get a new social contract, which is why protesters have been pushing for, and they just announced, I think yesterday, um, that they're going to rewrite the military era constitution, the mm -hmm. constitution in Chile that dates from 1980, which is really sort of the peak of the Pinochet uh, dictatorship and repression, which is still the Constitution. So they're, the rewriting of the Constitution has been cent has emerged at least as central to protesters' demands. And like I said, this is a this is a mass movement that is not exclusively on the left or yeah. on the right, um, but is really uh, a movement of students and working people, middle class people who feel like they've been left behind. Well, it almost has to be with the, the size of the people that have taken. I mean, if you haven't seen it, you'll have to see these photos and videos of the, the streets of Santiago that are just flooded with people. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and it's a, it's a country of only 18 million people. So right. when you hear reports that there are a million people marching yeah. in the capital, um, that's yeah. really, really significant. That's amazing. So what uh, inspired you to, to live in Chile, to study there, and, and what, what led you there? So I had actually done undergraduate fieldwork in anthropology in West Africa, um, and I had spent time in Europe. Uh, my, my background was actually in French. Okay. Um, so I took the job in Santiago because... Um, I am a, I love languages and I love cultural immersion, but I am a terrible language student. Uh, if any, any uh, language professor I've ever had is hearing this podcast, they would be nodding. Um, so I, I learned very quickly, I think, by forcing myself into situations, into to immersive situations where you, it's sink or swim. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing this about myself, I, I knew I wanted to do comparative work in anthropology. I wanted to look, I actually was going to look at international education um, originally, and I wanted to look at different post-colonial contexts around the world, sort of do multi-sided ethnography um, in a variety of locations. And uh, if you're thinking about the post-colonial world, um, if you speak English and French, you're halfway there. Yeah. Uh, but you're missing a huge chunk of humanity in, in Latin America um, and, and, and obviously uh, southwestern Europe. Um, mm -hmm. And so I wanted to learn Spanish. I took a job in Santiago. I could count to 10. I could say hello and goodbye. Um, and that was it. Um, and by working there for about a year and a half, I went out with Chileans. I lived with Chileans. I, I sort of, as best I could, shunned the sort of the expat community that's quite large there in Santiago because of oh, all okay. this foreign investment that we were yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and while I was there, uh, saw these protests in 2012 over the future of development in the South, over who was going to see profits from that, um, over this idea that the government in Santiago was selling off portions of the country mm. um, to foreign nationals. Um, and I sort of became interested in 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 the future of of the South, which is okay. this really sparsely populated region, but seemed to be central to a lot of national discussions. Like mm -hmm. What 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 kind of industries do we want to develop? How how are we going to provide services to uh, people in the most far flung parts of the country? You know, Chile is a, is a is a geographic anomaly in a way because it's so long and skinny, right? Yeah. It's it's half of the coastline, half of the Pacific coastline, or more of, of South America. Um, but it's it's only you're only ever 120 miles from Argentina. Mm -hmm. um, the, the width of the country is so narrow. And what this results in is a lot of isolated pockets, um, none more so than in the far south. And so yeah. um, there is this, this idea, and, and it's really salient with the protests right now, how is the government going to provide for those citizens? How, if the nation is developing, if it's modernizing, um, how is it going to deliver on its promises to citizens in the most remote parts of the country. And, and I got interested in that. I, yeah. I grew up, like I said, in a, in a small town on the coast of Maine, um, where the basically the two industries are, I mean, besides the service sector, are tourism and, and fishing. Mm -hmm. um, and so the more time I spent down there as I started to go and investigate this stuff, the more I realized, 
you know, I kind of, I tried to get, I left Maine. I was getting out of Maine. I wanted to go do, see the wider world. And, and there's a lot of the same issues in, in these areas. Um, how climate change is affecting fishing, how, um, aqua, what does aquaculture look like and, and is it the future and how can we do it in a way that's sustainable? You know, these are issues that people are grappling with here in the United States. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just, I, I just kept going back. Um, and then when I got into to Carolina, um, I had this proposal uh, that I started developing with my advisor. Um, and I was going to look at a number of things. I was going to look at different sites. And he was the one who sort of said, well, you should just, why don't you go to the South? He's just like, if you, also, you get to spend time in Patagonia. It's famously yeah. beautiful. Why are you fighting this? Um, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I've been going back down there since, uh, w- with UNC funding, I've been going down there and, and external funding since 2015. But That's I've been great. going to the South since 2013 or so. Mm-hmm. This is a question we ask everyone. What's a book that changed your life? So I, I mentioned Arturo Escobar earlier. His his book Encountering Development certainly changed the trajectory trajectory of my um, of my academic life. Thinking about development critically, right? Um, everybody, this idea that development is a universal good, right, is sort of is sort of popular. Um, but you know, as with any large project, people get left out. The benefits go to some, but not all. Um, you know not everybody's voice is heard. Prior to that, I, I was really inspired by and, and to do this sort of sweeping anthropology that I envisioned myself doing before I got into a doctoral program, of course. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Eric Wolf's uh, sort of masterwork on um, globalization and, and world systems, Europe and the people without history is sort of mm. a classic um, of not economics, although it should be, but anthropology, sort of world systems theory, political science, political economy, um, where he looks at the the legacies of colonial development um, in creating sort of a worldwide proletariat. Um, and I think that book, uh, while it sort of comes and goes, it was very, very popular when it came out, and then it kind of went away, and then it came back, and now it's sort of on the outs again. <laughs> I think that book is, um, is really important to understanding some of the social movements we're seeing right now. So yeah. We're talking about Santiago. I, I think I can call myself an expert on, on, on what's going on in Chile based on my research, but, but I'm certainly not an expert on what's happening in Hong Kong. I'm certainly not an expert right. on Lebanon and Algeria and, uh, and Ecuador and, and uh, other places where you've seen Bolivia now, the latest yeah. one, where you've seen these popular uprisings. But when you think about, and I, when you think about uh, Eric Wolf's work, he also had a hand in creating the field of political ecology, which is he's a really impressive guy. Um, but when you think about his work and the creation of this sort of global working class um, for the sake of extracting wealth from the periphery to go to um, more advanced states, we're still dealing with that. This is yeah. this the, these movements. Uh, this is a this is a global movement that Chile is just a part of of working people demanding a larger share of the wealth that we're generating at unprecedented rates. There's more there's more wealth in the world right now. We're providing more to more people than ever mm-hmm. before, but we're not doing a good enough job. And and these movements, I think, uh, point to that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Eric. That was great. Thanks for having me. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at iah_unc. underscore UNC.